Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 17 of the Madden America podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's gotten in touch, either by email or by commenting on Madden America. Your comments, feedback and support are most welcome. This week, I'm honoured to have been able to interview Olga Runciman. Olga is an international trainer and speaker, writer, campaigner and artist. She co-founded the Danish Hearing Voices Network and sees the role of the Hearing Voices movement as post-psychiatric, working towards the recognition of human rights while offering hope, empowerment and access to making sense of individual experiences. Olga was a psychiatric nurse working in social psychiatry, But today she is a psychologist, and since 2013 she has had her own private practice in Denmark, working with people who have been labelled schizophrenic or psychotic. Olga is herself a psychiatric survivor and a voice hearer too. In this interview we discuss Olga's professional and personal experiences of the psychiatric system, and how she now helps and supports healing and recovery in others. Olga, welcome. Thank you so much for talking with me today for the podcast. Firstly, I'd like to ask about you and your background and how you first came into contact with psychiatry. Oh, well, uh, first of all, yeah, thank you for for inviting me. Uh, It's a great pleasure. Um, How did I get uh, into contact with psychiatry? Well, uh, actually, I I, uh, was a nurse. Um, I I came to Denmark. Uh, I became a nurse. And uh, I became a psychiatric nurse, and I, I became a, what they call a specialized psychiatric nurse here in Denmark. In other words, you're working there uh, within psychiatry. Anyway, that's how I got into psychiatry. So I came in as a psychiatric nurse, and uh, that was, oh gosh, many years ago. And I worked for quite a number of years as a psychiatric nurse. And uh, at that time, I actually believed in all these sort of things that psychiatry taught us and told us about the science and that it was a chemical defect in people's brains that was the cause of their madness and distress. And I actually have to say, because I've really been thinking about it lately, I came from the neurological ward. I actually was working in neurology before I came into psychiatry. And... uh, there we wouldn't dream of giving a diagnosis without tests. You know, I mean, uh, if you've got uh, Parkinson's, well, you could go in and, and check that. Uh, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, brain tumors, you know, all these sort of things. And then I came to psychiatry and I stepped into this um, world where there was no back backup corroboration. It was just, you said... This person is suffering from this and this. And I think the world was so strange, the way I got introduced to it. And it was, I mean, I can see today that it is a a crazy world we've created inside these wards, um, with the result that I completely somehow, and I think many, you know, many people do, uh, forgot to take sort of the common sense that I had from the neurology ward with me to ask, hang on, is there any evidence for what is being said here? And I think I got, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but um, conned in a way, I think perhaps because it's so huge. It's in the whole of the Western world, we find psychiatry. It's just so utterly unbelievable to think that it is not really 
science-based. <laughs> Thank you, Olga. It is quite shocking to realise how much of psychiatry seems to be based on faith rather than evidence. Absolutely. And for me, I know we, we talk about uh, that we shouldn't compare it to, to a religion, but in many ways, for me, this is our modern-day religion. Certainly in Denmark, people have moved away from the church. Many of the churches are empty today and, and stuff, and this is just you know, a modern-day, the scientific, if you like, religion. Um, for for people's distress in the olden days, we you know in the very olden days people uh, saw it in God's hands that we suffered like we do now. We have psychiatry. <laughs> and Olga, I'm interested to know that kind of awakening that you had in seeing psychiatry for what it was. Was it that that led to your interest in activism and campaigning? No, 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 um, no. It it wasn't. Um, I I'm a voice hearer. I've heard voices since uh, since I was a child, four, five, three. So I can't even remember. It's I've had them in my my world all my life. Um, so I I came into psychiatry as a as a as a voice hearer. I had experienced. I've you know like many people. I've had great difficulties in my my childhood. Uh, things have happened. I've been. Uh, abused uh, in my school, I was bullied, uh, sexually abused in my school. There were many things that I, I carried with me, and I had uh, and I had these voices. Now I've had voices all my life, so I had uh, incorporated them in my way of being. So when I came into psychiatry, and I'd learned by that time that hearing voices and things like that was absolutely a huge taboo. You know that was the primary symptom of schizophrenia. So I, of course, hadn't spoken about hearing voices to a single soul for many, many years. And, uh, you know, I used to manage my, my periods of distress reasonably well, or at least enough to get educated and stuff. So, so no, I, I, uh, I, had, uh, I had all these um, voices. And when I came into psychiatry, I found myself questioning because I met many people who heard voices and they were deemed uh, schizophrenic, typically. And they were deemed incurable and uh, seriously, seriously ill. And I would, as this nurse, go around and think, what's the difference between my voices and their voices? And why am I a nurse and they're considered schizophrenics? You know, I had terrible dilemmas, actually. I can understand that. And Olga, were your psychiatric colleagues aware that you were a voice hearer as well as being a nurse at the time? Not at all. Right. Not at all. I I kept, in fact, uh, uh, very few people really knew about it. In fact, I probably ventured to say that nobody did because I um, I just kept it to myself. Um, I... Went, I started in therapy, but even there I was uh, kind of very quiet about that because it was such a taboo. And because I worked in psychiatry, I, I realized that if this ever got out, um, you know, the consequences were pretty dire. Um, so, and I, I'd managed, I mean, I'd had the, uh, these voices all my life. So, um, and I'd been fortunate, I'd been in, um, in Spain for, for a year um, where I was in a not a good space at all. And uh, at that time, I was speaking aloud to my voices, and there were some people that asked me, you know, what, why did I speak, you know, to myself? And that was the first time I really realized that I was externalizing these voices, answering. And so I spent uh, a lot of time intern making them, you know, an internal dialogue. So I spoke with them just through sorts or whatever one wants to call it. 
so nobody knew. What, what of course, happened was that uh, I uh, got into a very bad period that absolutely escalated, uh, where I was unable to um, use the, the, the tools I kind of had, and I did end up uh, in the psychiatric system myself. So, And I have to say that is absolutely where I learned very, very most being a patient of the same system of which I've been ed- educated within. Oh, my goodness. I, it's not something I'd recommend, uh, you know, but I have to say it, it, uh, it truly is an eye-opener to be, to be inside, uh, you know, to, to experience both sides of, of uh, that world. And I, I'm actually very grateful because I'd never have educated myself uh, within psychiatry. I never dreamt of going back and working in psychiatry. So it was good that I, in that sense, I was a nurse, a psychiatric nurse, before I um, was deemed a chronic incurable schizophrenic because mm. that's given me uh, access to to both worlds well there are very few olga that have had your experience of both sides of the story and i wanted to ask was your treatment voluntary or was it forced on you and were you medicated oh yes yes i i was uh, originally what what happened was um, i began to um, suffer uh, extreme uh, extreme anxiety i was working at the time in the in the the wards for, for, for the youth, you know, teenagers and, and young people. And um, there were also, of course, many self-harming there. But I began to suffer extreme anxiety, and my voices were uh, very, uh, very bad. And I started to self-harm through burning my tongue. And I just couldn't understand why I was doing this. And I can see today, you know, I mean, because it's many years, and I've worked through an awful lot of things. But at the time, what was happening was much of the, my memories from the past, which um, I always had a theory, and I had that right from the, I was a child, very small, that if things were not put into words, they did not exist. And many things didn't exist because trauma and especially sexual abuse is uh, something that's very secretive and doesn't often have a language anyway and exists in limbo. You know, so does it, uh, you know, do you, did it happen? Does it happen? All these sort of things. So, but I think what was absolutely happening was that the words were coming and I was trying to stop them. So I was burning my tongue to, 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 to stop them. Only I didn't realize it at the time. I, I just got extremely distressed uh, because I was thinking I'm, I'm going completely crazy here. And I had nowhere to talk and no one to talk with. Um, but I had a friend who, um, kept saying to me, you know, you seem really bad, maybe you should go to the psychiatric system. And I, um, being someone who worked in the system, came into a new dilemma because I discovered that I worked in a system that I didn't want to use myself. And then I thought, how can I possibly work in the psychiatric system if I don't want to use it? What am I offering? I mean, you know, this is, and that's actually one of the things I, I talk about when I, uh, for example, um, do training with um with staff, I, I often ask them to think about would they use the, the ward that they work in? Would they be themselves use it for their loved ones, their children or whatever? Mm. You know, because that was that was a huge dilemma, a huge question that absolutely bothered me and I had nobody to talk about it with, mm. you know, uh, because I didn't want to. And I thought to myself, how can I possibly, you know, do that to other people then? But she persuaded me one day to go over uh, to to the emergency, and um, there they uh, talked. A psychiatrist met me and talked with me. And I remember 
he asked very casually, do you hear voices? And I answered yes. And I thought, oh, my God, what I said. But he just noted it. And um, and uh, I was given a, a sleeping pill, and I spent the night there just in the emergency. And the next day I could walk out. Um, I said I was fine, no problem. And I um, started to live this uh, compartmentalized world in reality because at the time I'd, I was, uh, I'd gotten into the university. I was studying to become a psychologist. Um, I had uh, stopped quit. I decided to quit my working and just go into the, um, you know, this pool system where people can call you. But I ended up working far more that way. Uh, and then I ended up having this really bizarre life because sometimes I would be so distressed and couldn't sleep and, and I, I would go over to the emergency because I'd get a sleeping pill and I'd sleep and leave. So I had this sort of compartmentalized life that nobody knew about. Um, and uh, then one day I, I met a, a psychiatrist who said that he thought I should spend the night in the uh, closed ward or you know where you're locked in um and i thought that was an incredibly bad idea and said i i found that this system that i had devised was perfectly adequate to just spend the night and get a sleeping pill he didn't think so so uh, i was given the choice which i always laugh at these sort of uh, ridiculous wordings you know or sometimes if we think about the language that's used but i could choose between uh, voluntary being um admitted to the closed ward or I could choose to be involuntary admitted. And I, well, anyway, there is no choice there. That is a true catch-22. So I chose uh, voluntary because I thought the lesser of two evils, maybe I can get out tomorrow, and I didn't. And I ended up uh, spending more than half a year locked away in there. So that was the first time my family got to know about it, and my mom came over immediately. And uh, as she came in the door to my home, the phone rang to ask if I could take some a job, you know, a shift. And my mom said, no, she can't because she's in, in locked in the psychiatric hospital. So I lost my job on virtually the first day. I just wanted to ask, Olga, I've heard others describe being admitted to psychiatric hospital and undergoing months of treatment as deeply traumatic. And I wondered if that was your experience. Very. Um, because what happened was when I couldn't come out... Um, I ended up, uh, I was put on um, uh, vast numbers of, of drugs. Um, they were changing um, all, all the time. For example, just to name one of them that I was put on was uh, this ghastly product called clozapine. It completely, absolutely handicapped me. I was so distressed behind this mask of just sitting like a zombie um, because I was trapped in there. Um, I would dribble, you know, I remember the, the, uh, I was just drooling. Um, I uh, was, I became incontinent, which is a side effect that actually not many people know about. And I didn't as a, as a nurse. So I was horrified. I thought, oh my God, I, my world is truly falling to pieces. Uh, I am truly insane. Plus I also had my education, which told me that, uh, this thing existed, truly existed, and I had no reason to question it. So I was desperate. I was so desperate. I was desperate to get out. My family were horrified. Their eldest daughter had gone completely mad. Um, and uh, so I would do all these kinds of things. I'd be um, phoning, you know, I thought, I've lost my job. 
in, in my family, we need to um, find, uh, if we work or study, then it doesn't matter how terrible things are, then, you know, on the surface things are functioning. So I would be phoning, uh, applying for jobs, and I figured, okay, I can't be a nurse right now. So I was doing, you know, figuring cleaning jobs and, you know, working in a cafe or stuff. Um, and I would keep saying, uh, I can't come right now, but, you know, I'd be interested. And one time I phoned up that I didn't realize it was the hospital cafe. Uh, so they reported me. So I was given, you know, I wasn't allowed access to, to the phone anymore. And, um, you know, instead of asking, hey, Olga, why, why are you doing that? But this was seen as, uh, as another sign of my insanity because I didn't have illness in, in sight. So, and I can actually see in my journal that I tried to describe all these memories that were pouring forth about my past, um, but that became a tiny little sort of footnote, and I ended up very quickly, within three months, becoming completely focused on, um, oh my God, am I this? This cannot be true that I'm ill and I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life, which is what they were trying to get me to accept, uh, you know, my illness or lack of illness inside, and that becomes my focus. And I lose focus on the original, why I even came into the, you know, the, my distress, really. Mm. Uh, and I became focused on on the hopelessness yeah? and the desperation that this cannot be true. Well, the experiences you describe seem almost to intensify a person's isolation when maybe people struggling need connection and human interaction and they don't need to be physically isolated in hospital and chemically isolated with drugs. It was, uh, I can't say that the effects of the drugs, uh, and I was on them for 10 years, uh, uh, in all different kinds of cocktails during many years, um, were horrifying. I, me, I, I love to read. For 10 years, I couldn't read. I'd read maybe a paragraph, and I couldn't remember what it was I was reading. People, you know, I'd be sitting, staring at the TV, and somebody would ask, so what are you watching? I wouldn't be able to tell them. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate, you know, to things like making a cup of tea, which is just the modern natural thing. You just go in and put the kettle on and a tea bag. You know, it would be like I'd have to work out the steps. Okay, what is step number one, you know? Um, so I actually ended up also being um, told that um, that my illness was so so serious that it was cognitively affecting me. Basically, I was becoming completely, well, they said, uh, um, uh, mentally handicapped, you know, stupid. Uh, my, but yes, and that was due to the drugs. And Olga, how did you make that transition from inpatient psychiatric treatment to where you are now? You're an internationally known and respected activist, campaigner, speaker, and you help and support others. How did you make that transition? Well, I I made that transition basically because I think, well, for just to say, I, I actually got crushed by psychiatry, as I do, um, I did, uh, because I fought and fought for a long time with no illness, sight, and all this. But when um, we had this big meeting with my family, and it was you know a bit, bit a bigger meeting because they come from abroad, uh, and they told me, and at that point my family supported me, my attempts to get out, and you know, um, but they told my family while I was sitting there that I was. Um, incurably ill, I would never ever work again, I would never get better, I would need drugs for the rest of my life, I would need support for the rest of my life. And actually having them as witnesses to this disaster that unfolded, I stepped into this black hole and I became one of those invisible patients really, you know, that never spoke, just 
sat around and said yes and um and agreed with whatever words were coming that way. And my family changed too. They they went on into eggshell mode. They didn't know what to do because they realized now that I was truly, 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 you know, because they believed it. And um, my way out was actually um, I planned suicide. Um, and I, for me, this is a very big issue, really, because the story of hopelessness that uh, psychiatry imparts or tends to, to instill in people, because when they say you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you're seriously ill, it's in your genes and you'll never get better. This life that is then presented for you, kindly donated by psychiatry, uh, is horrible. I just couldn't live that life. So I actually planned suicide. Um, I planned it right down to the last uh, detail. And I wrote uh, a letter um, because I, I knew how how upset my family would be. And I really wanted them to understand why I just could not live this life. But for me, I wrote in there, I have tried everything. And through this fog of, of these drugs and stuff, there was something about those words that kept coming back. And, and, I, and I suddenly realized, actually, what those words did for me was, I hadn't actually chosen what I would do. And so I made a plan. And it, I didn't believe this plan because I'd never heard of anybody getting well. I completely entrenched in the belief system of schizophrenia and brain imbalances and all that um, stuff. So, but I, when I realized that I hadn't done that, I, I realized that I couldn't sign my letter uh, and, and commit suicide on a lie in that sense. So I planned, I made a plan. And uh, the extraordinary thing was this plan actually worked. So um, my plan was that um, I thought I'd never spoken about all these things that had happened to me. Um, and that was the original thing that I'd come into psychiatry for. So I found someone, a therapist, and body therapist I could work with. Um, I had a childhood dream of uh, actually not being a nurse, but to being uh, studying the stars, astronomy. And I found a course um, on that in the open open university just to come there. It was actually in the planetarium. And um, because I thought I'm going to be one of those stars very soon. So I thought I'll just, you know, do that. Then I looked at all my drugs and I thought I've taken all these drugs for so many years and been told that they help with the voices, and they never help one single bit. In fact, on the contrary, I've never had my voices so out of control. What it did do was I didn't care so much. <laughs> Emotionally, I was completely blunted. Um, and then I'd also put on an awful lot of weight. So I thought, okay, I'll do these things. I started to come off my drugs, which is probably the, the absolute the biggest thing. I found no literature on it, so I thought, well, what would I do? I thought, well, the people who are on substance abuse, they would use you know, withdrawal, go slowly. So I thought that, I looked at all the drugs and I thought, I'm going to do all of them in one go. So I just did, because I couldn't, all these things are working things out and I, I was so fogged by the drugs. So it was just easier to do a tapering for them all. And uh, and that's and that's what I did. And and I have to say my therapist there was uh, became my beacon of hope. She didn't realize there were two things I didn't talk to her about. One was the voices, because I considered them shameful and a sign of my madness. Uh, and the other one was my suicide plan. But um, what she became was she she was uh, she became my hope. And I found every time when I was thinking, is it now that I do it? I'd say, oh, I can speak with her one more time. And I'd usually feel better um, after having spoken with her and, and put it off. And then one day 
I discovered that um, I was I'd woken up basically from my drugs, the drug stupor, and I began to have initiative. I began to want to do things, and uh, this was completely and utterly new for me. I see my recovery, if you want to, and I'm so sick of the recovery cliche these days. I do feel it's colonized utterly, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but I had to. I went to a conference actually. I was persuaded to go to a conference and. Um, and there was this guy talking uh, about recovery and that um, people could recover. Because until then, even though I had gotten better, I thought it was like cancer. So I thought I had, you know, I'd never heard of anybody. I'd never met anybody who'd gotten well. So I thought, well, maybe I've got a couple of months, maybe if I'm lucky, half a year. And if I'm really lucky, a year. So I started to live life. Uh, absolutely. Every time I found myself afraid of doing something, I'd jumped into it because I said I've only got maybe six months left so um, you know things like uh, I wanted to learn to dive and I thought I'm not learning here in Denmark <laughs> uh, the water's cold and murky and <laughs> so I went to the bank and borrowed a pile of money and went to the Caribbean and stayed there you know things like that because I thought and, and I was also told I had a new diagnosis of course I was manic but uh, there was this guy and he talked about recovery and he talked about he said that um it could be because of your life story and stuff. And I remember listening to him and thinking, oh, my God, if I, if those glasses, I sort of, you know, those uh, uh, spectacles are right, the one he's talking about, that could mean that this state that I find myself in could be permanent. And that was a true life change because until then I had my, my suicide package right there and had everything in place because the day for the day that it would happen. Well, your experience of finding that little chink of hope in amongst so much hopelessness, again, it's difficult not to use cliche terms, isn't it, Olga? But it genuinely sounded life-changing. It, it was, uh, because um, every time I got feeling, I got anxious or my voices became particularly aggressive or stuff like that, of course, you know, I would think, oh my God, is it now? Is this illness that's out of control inside my body, um, you know, awakening again? And when I realized that there's this one, this was such a powerful message that I mentally just latched onto it and decided this is the way I'm going. And then, of course, um, and then I was um, so uh, fortunate that, oh, you know, I, I, I got to read Robert Whittaker's Mad in America book. And that started me on the activism, really. Yeah. That, that was the book, uh, because I read about that. And I read the whole book and I thought, oh, my God. And then I went back. And reread it this time, looking at all the references, and it was like this motorway that I was stuck on with no exit sign. You were only fed all the time. I kept because I was at that point in time saying, "There's something really, really wrong with psychiatry here," mm-hmm. and all and people were saying, "Oh, oh God, it's the right," and you know, you yeah, don't you go into conspiracy theories, you know. And I was of course terrified of being seen as mad again, you know. Um, but when I read that, then I yeah, that was my start on activism it's so powerful isn't it to witness that so many other people have had similar experiences well this is it i mean you know you've got i often think about the anti-psychiatry movement you know that's a, that is a real you know it's almost a swear word to say anti-psychiatry well, i think to myself well we say anti-psychotics and antidepressants uh, why can't we use anti-psychiatry i have no problem with using uh, the word um, anti-psychiatry I think it's uh, perfectly fitting in many, many ways. And Olga, I wanted to ask a little bit now about your activism and your writing. 
And you've talked and written of having a viewpoint that is post-psychiatry, and I wondered if you could help me understand how we support those in psychological distress in a post-psychiatric model. Yes, it's kind of based on the post, uh, post-modernism, but um, in, in, uh, in reality, it's uh, it, Pat Bracken and... and um Oh, and, and Phil Thomas, of course, Pat Bracken and Phil Thomas, that uh, wrote the, the that wrote the book Post Psychiatry, and both um, both psychiatrists, uh, but also very much into philosophy, both of them. Um, and the, for me, it it makes uh, post psychiatry and, and the idea of post psychiatry makes com- complete sense. It's part of the uh, critical psychiatry uh, network, um, and if we started with the uh, uh, anti the anti psychiatry movement, which you know came about in the the heydays of the sixties uh, and seventies, and and also because you know psychiatry was un, unable at that time to to define who was mad, who wasn't mad. You know the Rosenhan experiment, all these things that were were um, were occurring. There were many therapists, people beginning to go to therapy. You know psychiatry was under tremendous pressure, and so that's when they created the DSM three. You know which went. Before that, they had a sort of a more, you know, psychoanalytic. Many people went so more sort of more in that direction. But this, after that, they became that was the start of the true biomedical model that really took off then. And in fact, it's very interesting reading about the the history of how that is. You know, where they looked at what can they do that's different to say psychologists or therapists. Well, we can have we can have the white uniform and we can give pills. That's the difference. So let's focus on that idea. So that that was that uh, that uh, move. Now, one of the things that I think is also interesting, there was a lot of people that spoke for the mad people in the anti-psychiatry movement, and it was also an intellectual movement. But the uh, the the mad people themselves, and I, I like to use the word mad, <laughs> um, they they were not part of that movement. It was still another group of people who were speaking on their behalf. Mm. This time from a sort of a different perspective. Anyway, the critical psychiatry came about in the, in, mostly in the UK in, I think, 1999, uh, particularly when the, the laws for coercion were being strengthened. And critical psychiatry is, is psychiatrists who are um, critiquing their own field, uh, primarily the bio, uh, biomedical you know, model uh, and the drug culture of psychiatry and coercion, of course. And post-psychiatry is a is uh, on a continuum. So post-psychiatry would share all the things that critical psychiatry believes in, if you like, uh, but they've gone a step further because critical psychiatry is psychiatrists within psychiatry that are believing that change is still possible within the system. Um, And many people fight for that and believe that uh, change within the system is is possible. Um, Post-psychiatry, of which... uh, uh, Phil Thomas and, and Pat Bracken, the most well-known psychiatrists in that field, um, talk about that uh, they don't believe that that is, is possible and instead want to focus on opening up spaces outside of psychiatry. In other words, opening up many ways of, of, of and possibilities of, of healing, uh, of looking at madness and um, involving much more the community. And they are very adamant in involving uh, the the user and survivor networks, um, and in fact, uh, both well, both critical psychiatry and post psychiatry. If you're not a psychiatrist, they do uh, say, please join the Hearing Voices uh, network because that's uh, we support uh, support them work together. So post psychiatry is primarily uh, uh, about opening up spaces outside of of, uh, of psychiatry. 
It doesn't believe that there's a correct way of framing madness. And very much of, much of it is, uh, I feel, can go very hand, much hand in hand with the Hearing Voices Network. For example, we create our own help system uh, and self-help groups and ways of, of helping each other uh, outside of psychiatry. And that's what we do in the Hearing Voices Movement. This is what post-psychiatry is also advocating, that uh, these spaces open up. And basically also, like, uh, I'm very critical of... Um, of, of psychiatry, but I don't say what uh, psychiatry has to be, you know, shut down. I think there is a place for it, but what I do want to see is that it um, it uh, has to justify itself like many other things, and that its dominance, and particularly its dominance in coercion, in fact, coercion has to be stopped. And one day, the day that it's uh, it uh, people can have the right to say no to drug treatment, and no to, well, coercion is not part of it, but it's just a possibility out of many possibilities that people can choose from, then I'm fine. But right now, how it is, no. Its power must be taken away, and it must be put on equal footing along with many other help systems. Well, Olga, it's so refreshing to hear you say that the best way to support people is to help them make sense of their own experience in a way that means something to them rather than impose on them a diagnosis or a label or a particular way of thinking. Yes, because psychiatry is actually really, it's still stuck absolutely in the in the uh, Enlightenment era. You know, it still believes that the ultimate truth can be found. And, uh, you know, if you look how long enough, you'll find the defect in the brain or the gene, and uh, and what that means is that we're producing endless amounts of research that is just numbers that uh, dehumanizes the people behind all these numbers and uh, creates you know because we're living in a in this scientific era where it's just sort of slotting in it creates it gives them the aura of 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 knowledge and power or not that they have power it's not just uh, 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 pseudo power they have tremendous power um, but they are uh, but they are also utterly well I, I have no problems thinking of them as utterly corrupt the with the big uh, with the pharmaceutical industry all the, our drugs have been created based on on uh, uh, on the effects um, I did when I wrote my um, my thesis I looked at which is where I became very interested in post psychiatry was I was looking at um, the subjectivity of taking psychiatric drugs as somebody labelled schizophrenic. For example, all the research, and I did, I went uh, through all the database, five databases from 1950 to the end of 2012, looking at what research has actually involved those taking the drugs and their opinion and their experiences of taking the drugs. And I found 14. Now, I'm sure I've missed some, but even so, that is so tiny, it's just... So it's, it might as well not be there. Uh, in other words, all our knowledge, our present-day knowledge of how psychiatric drugs work is top-down. It is people saying, this is how it works, by looking at patients like a bug under a microscope. You don't, they're not part of this. Um, and yet, when you ask people, how are they actually experiencing the drugs, you can see that their descriptions fit completely uh, with how psychiatrists originally viewed, uh, for example, the the um, neuroleptics uh, in the in the in the 50s, it fits completely with that. Where it was described as a chemical lobotomy, it was described as not helping with the psychotic symptoms, but just made them calmer. 
it uh, the side effects were such that um, that they became so Parkinsonistic was uh, at that time when believed it was an antagonist to, to Parkinson. So that uh, they discovered that um, by making these people so Parkinsonistic and needing actual physical help, um, the the staff became kinder towards them simply because you know now they were so handicapped. All these sort of things, uh, and and this is how people describe them. So if you want to to see when when psychiatrists and patients were in agreement, you have to go right back to the beginning of the of the this uh, psychiatric drug revolution, which was uh, in the fifties and early sixties. That was a turning point, wasn't it? And Olga, can I ask what led to your work to set up the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal? I was thinking, you know, about one of the things that also affected me with my in my activism was um, was when I, uh, a young woman in one of my uh, my voice hearing groups dropped dead, and um, that was the first time I found out that uh, so many people actually die from from the treatment. At that point in time, I had just thought that people suffered permanent brain damage, but when I discovered that people actually there was such a high death rate. That was also another thing that really propelled me into my activism and my focus on drugs, uh, which has been probably my biggest, well, I felt that that's always been psychiatry's Achilles uh, heel. And that's why I want to say that for me, one of my real pleasures and joys is to be part of the uh, founding group of people who've um, started the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, that it's now becoming an official you know and to uh, shout from the rooftops that it's okay to, you know to talk about drugs which has been you know the crown jewels of psychiatry and it's like swearing in the church if you say anything against them so i want to shout from the rooftops and i'm so happy to be part of a founding group of people who have started this institute up yeah so things are are changing and we are getting more and more people are are beginning to to question psychiatry. So for me, I think the 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 foundation of of psychiatry, uh, which is its uh, pseudoscience, um, is truly cracking. And Olga, I wanted to ask, what have your own experiences and the experience of those you support in private practice taught you about the way that we as society respond to emotional or psychological distress? Well, I I decided um, to when I came out of the psychiatric system because one of the things that I'd wanted to or during all those years was talk to somebody about my my uh, my my life really, and I was told that, that as a schizophrenic that would just make things far worse, and um, you know I should maybe go and paint another painting or something. Um, so when I came out, I decided uh, uh, I would become a psychologist for all those people that were told that they should never have therapy. So that's why I have um, started to, to work uh, here in Denmark. And, and it can sound nice, fancy, you know, to say I'm the first and only psychologist working with people in extreme distress uh, in private practice here. Um, you know, they're psychologists employed in the hospital system, but they think, they, they, they think uh, in the illness model. So I'm the only one. And I think still, but I still think it's a tragedy. I think it, how, how sad, um, you know. But nevertheless, it is a huge gift for me. I can't say how um, how honoured I am to be um, a, a part of people's journeys uh, and to try and be some kind of 
of reflecting yeah teammates uh, on their journeys um i find so many people when they come the, f- the first thing they say is oh my god i have never been able to talk about these things without you know being judged and all the fearful things and i've been there and i've done that with so much of it and and many of the things that i haven't tried myself now i have so many stories uh, from other people that i can share their experiences and I amazed, this is the first time, and, and I have to think back from the, when I originally started to work in psychiatry as a psychiatric nurse, where I was just reinforced in the hopelessness of and the incurability of people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Uh, because now, working the way I do, I meet people who are considered absolutely chronic, impossible. You know, some people don't even have a, a language that initially is understandable when, when I start to speak with them, uh, and they end up getting their lives back. And not because I'm doing some kind of miracle, uh, you know, psychologist, uh, bloody terror. I am listening to their stories. Mm. I am being a, a witness to their stories. And also, I have to say, at the same time, uh, increasingly, in, in I help people off their drugs. I... I am actively uh, promoting that uh, to really get your life back uh, for most people getting off the drugs or getting to such a, a small amount, you know, so that they can function is probably also uh, a huge, not probably, I can see is a huge help. Mm. So that's what I, um, I do. Uh, and I see people getting better now in a way that I never, ever saw. And so I'm no longer just one, you know, one of these rare people, because initially when I first got better, if you like, from from psychiatry, I was also the first one to start verbally talking about it. And uh, initially there was nobody else. And I used to think, is it really true what I've heard that people do recover? You know, I'd seen some other people in other countries, but now they're all over the place. We're so many that recover when you leave. By the way, leave psychiatry. You have to leave psychiatry to recover. Because you have to be decolonized, uh, because I believe you become completely polluted by that way of thinking. And that is soul destroying. And so many people lose their lives because of that. Olga, I want to thank you because you mentioned earlier in the interview a particular therapist who'd become your beacon of hope. And you were a beacon of hope for so many through your activism, your teaching, your private practice too. So I just wanted to recognize that. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I want to say thank you to all the people because if it wasn't for, for, for these wonderful people that I've been able to share, share my story and who shared their stories and this worldwide network of people who are co-warriors, <laughs> if one can say that, with me. I want to say there's hope. You know, truly there is hope. And that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the horrendous suffering that people go through. Olga, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me for the podcast. It was an honour to be able to benefit from your experiences and thank you for sharing them with me. And thank you and thank you for doing this because I think uh, really these uh, podcasts and things they really get out to to people uh, uh, it grabs you in a different way so thank you. Madden America News and Updates On Madden America, we wanted to give you some additional details about the upcoming series of webinars on psychiatric drug withdrawal. 
The first webinar will be held on October 24th, and the three panellists are Jocelyn Peterson, Dina Tyler, and Oryx Cohen. All three have extensive experience of psychiatric drugs and considerable experience helping and supporting those who wish to withdraw safely. The panel will be moderated by Madden America editor Emily Shearer Cutler. The next webinar will be held on November 12th and is led by Dr. Sandra Steingard. Dr. Steingard will be discussing her journey toward a practice where research on long-term outcomes from psychiatric medications is taken seriously. She will present on the research that provides an evidence-based rationale for supporting patients to taper from antipsychotics. On December 12th, psychiatrist Dr. Kelly Brogan also presents her clinical experience working with patients withdrawing from psychiatric drugs, with an emphasis on the critical role of addressing the physical and emotional reasons that gave rise to psychiatric symptoms in the first place. She will provide a particular focus on anxiety and depression, as well as the psycho-spiritual underpinnings of the withdrawal process. She will describe her approaches in her clinical practice and her online healing community. Another international figure, Swedish therapist Karina Harkinson, will speak on January the 16th of her nearly three decades of experience, first as a founder of the Family Homes Foundation, and now as a founder of the Extended Therapy Room, helping people taper from psychiatric medications. On February 20th, Dr. Peter Bregin will share his perspective on the hazards of long-term use of psychiatric drugs. He will show the compelling evidence base for psychiatric drug tapering protocols, drug withdrawal syndromes that patients experience when tapering from psychiatric drugs, the biological explanations for such syndromes, and patient-centered and controlled approaches to successful drug tapering and withdrawal. On March 20th, we hear from therapist Will Hall, author of The Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. He will discuss how he works with individuals, families and clinicians using a person-centred and flexible approach to drug tapering and withdrawal as a life change and learning process. His presentation will include information on drug response diversity, crisis risk and alternative responses to experiences seen as psychotic. Finally, on April 17th, there will be a closing webinar which will host a panel of people with lived experience of taking and withdrawing from psychiatric medications. They will review this first Madden America withdrawal course, its strengths and shortcomings and discuss an agenda for developing drug tapering knowledge and support programs. For more details and to sign up for this groundbreaking set of webinars, visit maddenamerica.com and use the link at the top right-hand side of the homepage. So, thank you for listening. Please come back next week for another episode. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.